Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, gang, well, let's pray. We've got to tackle a bit of what I think we're going to face whenever we start talking about the afterlife. We've got to deal with a few basic issues that I hope I can stimulate some thought in your mind. So let's begin with a word of prayer. How do we appreciate the great calling that we have to represent you in this world as ambassadors, to take a message into this world that you have picked people out. You are cultivating a thirst. You're drawing them to yourself, and you're going to put us in the path of those people, and sometimes to truly deal with some intellectual barriers that they have, some barriers in their heart regarding what you are drawing them to embrace, this body of teaching, as it says in Romans, this form of teaching that they've been called to commit themselves to. And so we ask that we could be, even in the most basic way, equipped to be able to think rightly about these issues so that we might have the transferable concepts in our minds to dialogue and discuss in a winsome and yet persuasive way in a reasoned yet urgent way, the importance of people getting right with you while there's still time. And from a human perspective, that is, God, really what drives us in many ways is that we don't know really when you will come back or when our lives may be over. We need to live for eternity and even our neighbors and friends and co-workers that don't know you that are currently rejecting the gospel. We need to sense that urgency and call them while there's still an open door of grace and mercy available to them. So God, give us a good night tonight that might put some things in place to help us with the dialogue. And while you could use anything to bring people to repentance and faith, we know that in Scripture, the means that you've chosen is human beings discussing and proclaiming and asserting and defending the truth of the gospel. And so we pray we could have a good deal of help and progress in doing that well in our time together tonight. Thanks for this crew. I do appreciate it, God. I know it's so busy in the fall every year, and there's so many options and pressures and appointments that we can fill our evenings with, but I pray, God, that this investment would be one that every person in the room would feel was a good investment of their evening. So thanks for allowing us this time and this faithful crew to enthusiastically dig into these thoughts and even survey in their mind these passages that we put up on the scripture every week that remind us of how to think. And I just ask that you would encourage them tonight. Let them drive home when this is over, Lord willing, with a just a renewed fire and passion to serve you as good evangelists in this world. So we commit ourselves and our minds and our hearts to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about the afterlife, first of all, by taking a quick survey in light of our apologetic task to try and give a reasonable defense for the hope that's in us, we're going to talk about a hope of not this life, but the next one. We are not post-millennial. We are not people believing that heaven is going to be ushered in by our gospel preaching in our own communities. We are not going to see, we do not believe that the scripture teaches us that we're going to reach some golden age of some kind of of church-led theocracy. So we are pinning our hope on the next life. We're basing our hope and our 
confidence in the promise of a world in which righteousness dwells. And so we're looking forward to that. And so we need to think about how when we talk to people about the gospel, what their thoughts are. And generally speaking, we can only do this with statistics, is looking at the statistics. And I got to tell you, this is both an encouragement and a challenge as we look at this very first statement here. And that is that life after death uh, is consistently believed. And I mean that over time and through demographic. Though there's shifting in demographic and different regions of our country and certainly around the world in the mission field that we're in here in our generation, I just want you to know that has been pretty much at least as far back as I can see with detailed surveys and research and analysis uh, unchanged in 80 years. There has not been a significant change in the belief in the afterlife. As a matter of fact, only 15%, depending on which poll you read, what survey you look at, and I'm talking about the broadest ones by the most decorated and and trusted polling communities from Pew and Gallup and all the rest, you've only got about 15% on average that are going to say, we don't believe there is an afterlife. I know it doesn't add up, right? We can look at the naturalism or evolution or whatever we might have said previously, even about atheism in the stats there, that there's most people believe that there is life after death. Belief in God is slipping, even though that's a greater number. You might see the trends and the charts looking at the trajectory of things like belief in God on the decline. You may see agnosticism uh, on the rise, but, and certainly people that would say, I'm committed to this particular religious group, you might see that on the decline, but not the belief in life after death. Atheism, as we talked about both in our Bad Theology series and also in the beginning of this series on the belief in God. We're trying to establish the reasonableness of there is a God and he's revealed himself. Uh, We talked about that moving up in terms of the percentage, but we're really rough and dirty in America, about 3% of the people. It's higher elsewhere. Uh, Japan, for instance, very high. China, of course, the highest self-reporting atheists, which of course, it's a good thing in a society like that to say you're an atheist, to toe the party line. But, and in Europe, of course, a lot of European countries Uh, France in particular leading the way in atheism. But in America, you've still got a very low number. As belief in the Bible slides, you may say the belief in God is starting to slip. The belief in the Bible is, in many ways, at least if you look over the last 80 years, is plummeting. But but not the belief in life after death. Um, There's a lot of folks now, up to 22%, who would say, I don't believe the Bible is an accurate book. They might say it as firmly as, I think it's full of fables and myths. So that number is growing. If you look at that, that's a pretty big number. And only 78% would say something like, well, I I trust the Bible as a reliable source of history or what have you. So doubt in the Bible is definitely down. But belief in the afterlife is actually moving up. The trajectory is slow because it's such a high number. But today, more people would say, in America at least, I'm speaking American stats now, would more people today would see they believe in the afterlife today than they did 30 years ago. And yet the belief in the Bible in the last 30 years has gone down at a good clip. So that presents us with a particular challenge. And yet when you talk to someone, if it's your waiter or someone you're waiting you know, with at the tire store or whatever, and, and you talk about the afterlife, most people are already there. They believe there's something beyond the grave. And I think that's an important place for us to begin, is to think that through. The reason for that, biblically, is that we have an imprint of immortality. 
an imprint of immortality. And I just thought it would be good to take a quick second to step back and say, well, what do we even mean by that word, immortality? We talk about mortals, mere mortals. The word as it's translated and used in our English Bibles can sometimes refer to the word immortality as an exclusive attribute of God. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, verses 15 and 16 says, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. That picture of God being the only one who is immortal. It's like a lot of words we use in a technical sense with a very specific reference to God and his attributes. Like we might say God is holy. And you might look at a person and even the Bible might call someone like Daniel or Samuel or Moses a holy person. Even all the Christians are called holy. We're called saints. That's what it means. We're holy ones. We don't mean that in an absolute sense. So when you speak in terms of an absolute sense, which is very easy to define as I'm about to help you think it through, we need to recognize that God has a corner on what we mean by an absolute sense of immortality. But in a relative sense of immortality, we realize that Christ came to give us immortality. It says Christ who abolished death, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So there's something about the word immortality that we get to share in because of Christ and the gospel, assuming, of course, that we respond respond rightly to it. And we're thinking about, in particular, what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53 is talking about, and that is that we know mortality as we describe it in terms of human beings is that we are temporal beings. We are temporal in the sense that we have a beginning, and in our human biology, we have an end. And the point of the resurrection is to take the perishable and put on an imperishable body, and as it says in the middle of this verse, to have the mortal body take on immortality. So there's a couple different senses to this. Three, really, if you think about it. There's the immortality of God, who was always, who is, of course, now, and is to come forever. He was, he is, he is to come. That's the ultimate definition of immortality. Now, there's a sense of mortality when you look at biology and that someone was born on a particular day. You walk through the cemetery, they'll have a date on there when they were born and you have a date on there when they have died. There's mortality. There's a mortal being. He wasn't before he was born and now he's died. And so we say, well, there's, there's a little tiny space of time that this person was. But we go, well, wait a minute. We know that's not the case because... Though we have no definitions in scripture for existing before we're born, we have all this discussion about life after death, and we recognize that there's an ongoing consciousness and reality after this life. So we would say, okay, so everyone is going to live after they die. But the question is, how are they going to live? Are they going to live in concert with God and his blessings or alienated from God and all that he can grant us in terms of blessing and good and joy and pleasure? And if we're excluded from that, We're said to be dead again. Second death, it's called in scripture. You're cast from the presence of God. You have this eternal problem. But if you're saved, well, then you live forever. Even though you die, yet shall you live. That's the picture that Christ paints for us. Lazarus is seen there in John 11. So the idea is God is the only one who's immortal. Human beings in their temporal bodies in this particular epoch of time have a beginning and an end. But we really don't mean they have an end. They have an ongoing reality. But what we want is we want immortality to be brought to light, to be with God after they die. And that would be a great thing. Well, we need the body then to be resurrected. We need that mortal body, that perishable body, to become imperishable and immortal. And so in that sense, we talk about immortality. So when I talk about the imprint of immortality, what I'm talking about is we are thinking in these terms that there's something beyond this life for us. There is some existence beyond this life. 
who we are goes beyond what we experience between those two dates on the headstone. And Genesis 1 verse 27 helps us in this regard because we know, unlike other things like creatures that may have some kind of existence, maybe not the reflexive nature that we have, maybe even not the kind of sentient realities that we experience, but we know there are creatures and animals and all kinds of beasts of the field and fish of the sea, and they're like us in the sense they share the same definitional biology in many regards, but God has created us unique. There's a unique special group of people called human beings that were made in the image of God. He creates them, male and female, the same in the sense that they both reflect the image of God. Well, God is the God who is immortal. He possesses immortality. He creates beings now, pulls them out of the dust of the earth, breathes into them the breath of life. And there's something about the nature of those individuals now that are encased in, in a body, in a physical container, and, and they're enmeshed in that container. They have in just in the sense of who they are, a sense of immortality. They know there's something beyond this life. They intuitively recognize that. Not to mention they were designed to experience that. Genesis chapter 3, that's the bottom of the curse. Remember, they were caught. Of course, they were going to be caught all in the open view of God, disobeying God's command. And so God then is going to punish them. And you know, as he goes through that list of things, the very last thing, and we don't often read it as carefully as we read the other things like pain and childbirth and sweat of your brow and to the dust you shall return. Well, the next thing that it describes in that passage is guarding the tree of life. So the cherubim are posted there so they can't eat the tree of life. Why? Lest he reach out his hand, speaking of Adam here, and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Well, living forever is kind of the second tier definition of immortality. And we know God had made individuals, at least on paper, the intention is for them to live forever. And in that sense, they're immortal. And they have a reality in their own design of being immortal. And they that's the way, that's the way they they think that's the way they feel. That's, that feels right to them to live forever. As Ecclesiastes 3.11, and it is a notoriously difficult bit of grammar, but I think most people come to the conclusion, even though the context seems a little baffling, that little middle phrase there in verse number 11 means what it seems to mean. And that is that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. He has put eternity into man's heart. So there's a sense in which I have this, this nagging reality in my own thinking that I should be not dying that I should live on. And all you have to do is think about your own mortality and you think, wow, that doesn't seem right. And that's why, and I often say it, uh, sometimes they say it at funerals, that when your, when your grandmother dies and she's 90 years old, we, we might say it, but we don't mean it, that, well, she had a good life, like she lived a good life. Well, if, if you were in Methuselah's family before the flood, you'd feel really bad for a 90-year-old that dies. You'd be like, wow, that's a bummer. That'd be like a 10-year-old dying here, and we grieve a 10-year-old not the way we grieve a 90-year-old. Well, that's all relative, of course. The world changed, as we know, as I've tried to posit at least, and we have a whole different world, and it's more hostile toward biological life, and so we die a lot earlier, precipitously, on an actual equation that you can you can spell out if you're the mathematician and guys have done it to show how after the flood we see this precipitous fall in the lifespan of individuals. So we know how long you live is a relative thing. And we would say to our grandmother, if you love your grandmother, you're still going to cry. The only reason you would say, well, she lived a good life and it's good that Ethel's gone is because you're concerned about her pain. You're concerned about the fact that she's not who she used to be. But see, if all of that is not an issue, 
You want grandma to live, if you love her, as long as possible. Just like you when you're 90. If you are functional, if you are able to do what you can do, you'll be like, well, of course I want to keep going. I want my relationships to last. Death is that, that intrusion. And all I'm trying to say is, biblically, the rationale is everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone carries around a sense of immortality. So that's why we can deny our origins in an evolutionary story. We can deny a lot of spiritual realities because we feel like all that is in terms of reality is what I can see, taste, touch, and smell. And and here, you can even believe there's no God. But all of those are going to be less on the, on the stats than people saying, well, I think there's life after death because... There's something about the ontology of who human beings are that say, I think I should be living on. I don't think I should be dying. I don't think I should cease to exist. And of course, I listen to a lot of folks that try to assert the fact that there's nothing but molecules. That's all we are. And it is interesting when they're posed the question or when they, in a moment of describing their own mortality, speak about the fact that they are not going to exist anymore. And we've talked about the the existential nihilists even earlier in this series. There is a, a real pained sense of almost concession to the fact that it doesn't seem right, but in their philosophy, they want to be hardcore and consistent. You know, it's that small group of people that will say, I don't think there is anything beyond this life for me. Now, there are people who believe in God that still believe there's nothing after this life, but in reality, that's a hard thing. It's pressing against all the human beings are. That's why we, in an iPhone-carrying technological age, can believe as strongly as we do in our culture that there is a God. Atheism is often pressed into the masses at the tip of the spear and people being with a gun to their head forced to follow a lot of things in their culture but we seem to always spring back to the fact that we should there should be more to this life than what we experience so what we're going to do as apologists is we're going to try to make sure that we are pitting against in our own thinking the difference between speculation and revelation that we can think about the afterlife in terms of what i intuitively imagine it should be or want it to be Or I can go back to the fact that there's a reality in terms of something that has been revealed, that there's someone that knows. And I often play this game with you, and I don't know if I've done it recently, but I have something in my pocket, and I don't, I don't, I didn't tell a single person before I came up here what's in my pocket. Now you can think about, I don't know, time of the year, the month, you can think about what Pastor Mike might have in his office, you might think, did he go home, did he get, but if if you want to think about what's in my pocket and figure out what that is, You could even take bets on what it is, but you would hope that the only way you could accurately affirm what's in my pocket with any certainty is to have me tell you, since I'm the one who knows and no one else knows. And and that's that's what we're dealing with, the difference between speculation and revelation. Does anyone want to guess what's in my pocket? If it was a matter of life or death, right, you'd you'd, you'd have to really think about it. And a lot of people have really tried to think about what lies beyond the grave, but you don't know. Maybe before the night's over, I will tell you what I brought to the auditorium in my pocket. Let's talk about speculative sources. As you sit around and think about what's beyond this life, what is there? Well, the first thing that is so common is intuition. And I wrote a book on the afterlife recently, and I dealt with that because I, the research I'm doing just in terms of life and in books about what people think regarding the afterlife, so much of it is based on this is the way I think it ought to be. And that's nothing other than the visceral gut reaction to what I think there should be. My experience in this life, I collect a series of things that I think it, you know, that, that I like and things I don't like. And so I want to go to a place that I like intuitively because I like pleasure better than pain. I like good better than bad. So I'm going to imagine what's out there. 
And now I'm going to talk about what's out there, and I'm going to assume what's out there, and I'm going to hope what's out there, and I'm going to follow my life and live my life according to what I think. And I'm going to think about how I might go and experience the best in the afterlife, even if there is an option for me in terms of how I might exist in the afterlife. So people intuitively try to speculate about these things. The Bible is very clear about what we should think of speculation, and that is that speculation is always a tenaciously held position. There is a way that seems right to a man, and they will fight for that. They will think, this is what seems good to me. It's like in the book of Judges, twice spoken, very clearly said as a matter more than just politics and a monarchy, that when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And everyone just decides for themselves what is right. Of course, the Bible says you better be careful how you gamble on your gut because a lot of times your gut's going to lead you into a pit. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of death. So speculation is not good if you're just relying on whatever you think is right, what seems right, what you consider to be right. Proverbs 21 goes as far to say that really every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Ultimately, you need to think that that's what most people are going to think. They're going to have to have their views rested from their fingers. You're going to have to peel back their tenacious belief in what they think is right. And in the end, we know that God sits outside of all of that. And if you're going to talk about God things, like who he is, what he's prepared beyond this life, those are the kinds of things that you should be very careful to consider in light of the one who you're thinking about. The assertions you make about the afterlife or the God of the afterlife, really you can see the Bible says intuition not a good way to go. God should be able to define those things. Of course, more than anything else, and dealing in the business that I deal in, and that is the business of people, and so much of my life, certainly early in my uh, pastoral ministry, I was on call by a couple of different mortuaries in town, and when they didn't have a pastor and they needed to rent one for an hour, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, I made hardly any money, and I didn't do it for the money. I did it I've done a lot of funerals and not made a dime, but I remember early on having my number on the Rolodex of two of the local mortuaries, and I would go and do funerals. So I'm always dealing with people in their moment of grief, and I always hear them talk about the reality of the deceased in the afterlife. It is amazing the kind of projection of wishes that comes forth in people's minds when they think about someone they love that now is there. And of course, they're projecting even what they are going to experience when they are there. And they're stating a lot of the things that they think is going on and what the person is experiencing. Psalm 50 verse 21 is a great principle. I quote this often because it's such a fundamental way people think today. When it speaks in this case, starting with things people do and they do these things and God hasn't immediately corrected them. He hasn't said, well, you've done those things because that's the context, the list of things they've done wrong. And he didn't judge them. He didn't punish them. He doesn't discipline them. He gives them time and grace, like a lot of things in life where he doesn't immediately step in. And their reaction is, and the response is, the resolve is, well, then they thought that God, the one that they have to do, that's how the Bible puts it, right? He's the, everything's laid bare before his eyes with him till we must live our lives and account to him. And the point of this is that we will just assume that anything that's gone okay in my life, that God hasn't immediately or harshly corrected, that must be what God approves and what God is like. The projection of our wishes. And the Bible's always fighting that in terms of people that are always projecting their wishes on other people. Here's what you should think about the future because you want it to be that way. I'm going to try to figure out a way to tell you that's the way it will be. 
That's what the false prophets were doing constantly. Ezekiel 13.10, God tries to call them out through Ezekiel and say, they've misled these people that are saying these things. They've misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. Because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. They build something that's bad and God does not approve of. And here come the prophets to, to paper over it, so to speak. Make it look good and that's fine. It's good. That'll work. They built their lives, they built their government, they built their society, they built their morals and ethics and morality around whatever, and then the prophets come along and they shine it up and paint it up and say, there, that's good, God, God's fine with all of that. That is the projection of wishes we see everywhere in scripture under the heading of false prophets. The prophets love to speak things to help people see their dreams fulfilled in their own minds, at least for the time. It's like the Bible saying that it's only going to get worse as we approach the return of Christ in that they will have, they will accumulate for themselves teachers, right? They have itching ears that will simply pander to their desires. The real teacher and preacher should be going to God's word and proclaiming it, but instead the pattern will be, certainly as God sits by and does not judge people immediately. We may be building the ark, but everyone's, you know, no one's carrying their umbrella around because there's no sign of rain, it seems. Well, the flood is coming, but everyone says, well, because it's been fine, it's going to be fine. And let me find some people that'll speak for God that'll tell me what I want to hear. The projection of our wishes is a huge thing. And you need to know that when you talk to people about Christ and the afterlife, which is where we're ultimately all headed, the assumption is going to be, I want it to be what I want it to be. I feel that it's right. I've got people telling me it's right. I can get a nice little group of people that are going to tell me it is exactly what I want it to be. Another thing that's very big, it's bigger than it's ever been, and that's dubious testimonials. People saying, this is what the afterlife is like because I can testify to it. Are you following what I'm talking about now? A whole genre of writings and best-selling books, and they are best-selling books. Ezekiel 12, 24 says there's a big problem saying they've been behind the veil and are bringing back information from God. It's not just that they're spokespersons and stating morals and whatever. They're they're visionaries. They've seen things. And, and God says, I'm going to put an end to all that. I mean, one day he will. There shall no more be any false vision or flattering divination. I love that. Behind the veil. You want to know what the divine is? I'll tell you what the divine is. And then they come back and say, well, here's what it's all about. It's flattering divination. Makes you feel good within the house of Israel. We're going to put an end to that. Which again, I'm just quoting as an assumption that you're going to have a lot of that. And we certainly have it in our day. And God is trying to warn them, listen, people that come and prophesy about things they've seen, there's plenty of people that'll do that. But there's a lot of people, certainly in Jeremiah's day, that are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And if you want to look at the bookshelf today, and this is just a partial list of some books I found that speak to, I've been to the afterlife and I'm coming back to tell you, and you see how popular that genre of book is. And there's a book, seems like written every six months that gets really popular about someone going to the other side, coming back and telling us about it. We've had the books on heaven. We've had a couple on hell, but all these people talking about these near death experiences. I would just say this. Remember the reason for this is the imprint of our immortality. Why do people want to read books? Why do people write books? Well, I could say it's a lucrative endeavor in that genre, at least, of people saying, I know they'll read this book, they'll buy this book, and there's some very big book deals based on this genre, but they do it and they read it because all of us sense it. There's a sense that there's life after death. So the fulfillment of their 
wishes so often is codified in these books. Just remember, there's always a market for these books. There will always be a market for these books and testimonials and stories. And just remember, it's a projection, what I'm saying, of our wishes. And one reason I'll tell you that is because they're usually universal. I was talking with someone recently about their loved one that had recently died not too long ago. And again, there's this sense of, I want to believe that they're saved. And in some cases, like the one I was dealing with, there's there's good reason to think that maybe this person was saved. I mean, there's a lot of gospel shared at the end of this man's life, and, and that may be. But I'll tell you, most people who believe that there is a hell, an alternative to heaven, I mean, they don't believe they're going there, and they don't want to believe that anybody that they know is going there. And these books are written to affirm that kind of gut reaction, that feeling that we should all make it. So they're usually universalistic, which immediately should tell you, I know they can't be right. It's got to be a lying divination because the Bible's very clear. There's a big gate and a broad way, and it leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. I think it's very hard to find a book, none of them on the screen at least, they're going to tell you that's the reality. Lots of people don't make it. (laughs) Uh, That book doesn't sell very well. So revelation versus speculation. What I'm trying to say is we as evangelists and apologists are always trying to take people back to a reliable revelation. If we're going to talk about defending the faith, you would think this would be the first lecture in the series, but it's lecture number eight. Why? Because we can't even get to talking about with any kind of certainty what's going to happen after this life is over unless I am established in my own thinking and in the mind of the person I'm talking with that there is a reliable revelation from God. Look at the contrast in scripture. I've been quoting these from Jeremiah and Ezekiel because it was epidemic at the end of the sixth century BC. People were trying to say everything's fine when it wasn't fine. Jeremiah 23, 16 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They're false hopes. They speak visions of their own mind. And here's the contrast. And not from the mouth of the Lord. The Bible's clear in saying over and over and over again, there is a sure word about your future. And it's here found in the things that God has revealed. And then there's a lot of people that are going to tell you what you want to hear. And we've got to somehow help our our, our evangelistic prospect understand that's our pension, that's our desire, that's our proclivity. We want to hear things that we want to hear. And so we'll always have people that are there to tell us that. And so we've got to know, we've got a distinction to make. And even that's a phrase, I tried to word the second point in a way that you could remember and even use. We can rely on what God has revealed about, just to speak of what is in my pocket, what's in my pocket and what has been revealed. If I have authority to know what's in my pocket and no one else has seen this, no one else knows this, only people say, well, I kind of peeked in his pocket when he walked by my table. You've got to trust the one who's able to reveal this with authority and accuracy. And that's the contrast made throughout scripture. One of my favorites, because it relates to preachers. And as I teach preachers so often, this is a passage that always comes up because it speaks so well to the task of us as preachers, but it speaks to the task of evangelists as well. As you share the gospel with your coworker, Jeremiah 23, 21, I did not send the prophets yet. They ran, they came to you. I didn't tell them to come to you. I did not speak to them yet. They prophesied, but if they had stood in my counsel, Then they would have proclaimed, one of the best lines in Jeremiah, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned from their evil ways and from the evil of their deeds. Because that's the whole problem with them going to the Babylonian captivity is their evil deeds. And unfortunately, everyone's saying, you built a really ugly wall here, but I'll just paper over that for you and it's fine and God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you and it's gonna be great and don't worry about it. God is loving, he's merciful and they'll presume upon God's goodness and not deal with the problem that's leading them into 
in this case, temporal punishment with the Babylonian armies and swords coming their way. So the contrast is really, do you want someone to tell you what you want to hear or do you want someone to tell you what is true? And I hope, even though you like good news, you don't want the mailman at the end of the, of the driveway sorting out your mail when you walk up to get it. And he goes, well, I put that back in the, in the truck because I don't think you're going to like that piece of mail. That's not your job. Your job isn't to sort my mail. Your job is to deliver the mail. You don't want to sit across from your doctor and have him not tell you the truth because he's afraid it might hurt your feelings. Am I right? Would you like him to have a good bedside manner and it would be good for him to say it in a way that's compassionate, but you want him to tell you the truth. And I think your commission as an evangelist in a day that the Bible has prophesied is going to be filled with people accumulating for themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. Your job is to speak the truth and it's loving to speak the truth, just like your doctor or your accountant telling you the truth about the reality of things. That's what you want. That's loving. Is there a nice way to say it? Yeah. Other than to say, we have a debt before God, and so does your neighbor, your coworker, and your family member, and you've got to tell them that. When it comes to the afterlife, the reality of the afterlife is most people are not going to make it to the place that everyone thinks they're going to make it to. So we contrast speculation with revelation. We've got a Bible that has been authenticated. This is review, of course, because we've already been there and building a case that the Bible is true. And what's the one thing you can point to that's always going to authenticate objectively? It's like the ongoing miracle of Scripture. If you know when the Bible was written and you got proof that it was written when it was written and then you look at the events that were subsequently happening after it was written, you can put together the pieces of prophecy that speak to those things and you can say, who else can do that? And we've looked at this passage among others, but God basically dares the false prophets to do this. Hey, you want to lead my people to follow you? Well, then stop just telling them what they want to hear. Why don't you prove that you're speaking for God? Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring and tell us what is to happen. There's the thing no other person can do. Only God can do that. Do it accurately. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter. That is the critical dare that should help us recognize that when you share with your neighbor the bad news of his diagnosis and what the afterlife holds for those that are not in Christ, that's the thing that should make the difference in your mind, that you're bringing a reliable revelation to him. The passage goes on. That we may know that you are gods, if you are. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And unfortunately, that's what we've got in our day, people choosing to believe, which is a lot of times just a lot of dubious testimony, gut reactions, wish fulfillment, not wish fulfillment, but wishful thinking that guarantee will not be fulfilled. We need the truth of God's word. It's been authenticated. And if for nothing else, as long as we're on the topic of the afterlife, let's look at the one who's affirming the Bible is God's truth. It's Christ himself who said to John on the island of Patmos, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, he says, write the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. This sets up the book of Revelation, which is filled with biblical prophecies that are actually coming true even in our day. Think about that, the assembling of Israel together, for instance, and that's all the center stage of the end time events. And I mean, there's so much in the book of Revelation we could look at and we have, but the picture of God foretelling the future. And he starts with this, I've been to the afterlife and I'm back. And the reality of life and death, you should listen to me. I'm the first, I'm the last. Talk about immortality. I have the true and ultimate definition of immortality. I always was and I always will be. I've gone from this mortal life in a mortal body 
and I put on immortality. I had a perishable body that could die. I proved it by dying on a Roman execution rack. I've come back now. You should believe me. I've got the keys to death and Hades. Therefore, I'm giving you one last book of the Bible, in this case, the book of Revelation, and it should be our reliable guide because it has been authenticated by a risen Christ. And that's what I've said. I've said it multiple times in evangelistic encounters. Don't you want to learn about the afterlife from the one who's been there? And I'm telling you, he's been there, not only as some guy who's written a book about his kid dying in a hospital table, but he is someone who was prophesied to live and to die and to rise again. And he's come with a lot of authenticating proofs. So we have a reliable revelation. And it's unique in the sense that it's very detailed. It gives us lots of good information. It tells us what we need to know, and it does it with authority. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 through 10 ties these themes together. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have not a cruci- they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those. And you always read this, and you think, wow, isn't it great that we don't know? It's going to be so good, you can't even imagine I know that it's used in that context. That's not the context in which this passage is given. It's given to say, I know God has got things we could not know, we could not see, we could not hear. You couldn't even imagine it. But these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And the us is not us. The us is the apostolic band who put it into writing. Now you can know it. The us can be us, but you don't know it directly. You know it indirectly in the sense that God has given us the written word, the God-breathed words of Scripture. It's a unique and reliable guide. Why do we know that? The Spirit of God gave it to the apostles. They wrote it down, and the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So I know what's in the afterlife. I know a great deal about what's in the afterlife. It's the unique, clear, definitive, and in some cases even detailed record of what I can expect in the afterlife, and Jesus talked about it all the time. Revelation versus speculation. I want you, much like we've done about God and the Bible and Christ, I want you to not settle for people and their eschatological agnosticism. That's a big phrase for people that go, well, you can't know. Who can really know? I can't let you have your friends and neighbors settle for that. It's just not an acceptable option. Information about the afterlife can be known. And I'm not going to get it from a book about a kid who said he died and went to heaven. I got it from the king of kings who proved that he was Christ by everything he did, initially by fulfilling scripture and ultimately by rising from the dead. And I'm going to look to what he says about the afterlife and I can be certain he's given me the information. Details have been revealed and I can articulate details to people about what lies beyond this life. And that information, most importantly for our skeptical age, has been authenticated. It's been authenticated by predictive prophecy. It's been authenticated by the good, reliable history of the Bibles. We've talked about how God has preserved his word and it has been given to us in an authenticated package because it's been affirmed by the mouth of Christ. And all the things the apostle said, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, even when it was given, is proven to be God's word by the way he affirmed it through those miraculous signs. Peter is a part of that and even being witness to them says this about the word. Second Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Speaking of the Old Testament text, now we have everything in that more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. That's an eschatological statement about what is to come. 
And the point is, the Bible, as it's always been said, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's God's truth. As our theme verse for our church says, he sent forth his, his truth, his light and his truth. He sent this into the world to inform us, to give us information. He's authenticated it. And even in a New Testament perspective, we're saying all that prophetic word of the Old Testament, it's more and more fully confirmed. And we should be able to share it with people with confidence, even though they want to rush to this discussion. We're at lecture number eight. We need to think through all the things we've dealt with from the whole beginning of this, starting with, is there a God? Has he revealed himself? Is that revelation reliable? What about Christ? What about the miraculous? What about Christ? We started with that. And then we went to deal with these issues here after we talk about the resurrection, the cornerstone of so much in biblical theology and revelatory history. So don't settle for eschatological agnosticism, which is that idea that we really can't know. Insist on it. I mean, that's worth debating vigorously with your friend and your coworker and your family member. We have a sure word from God. Let's talk about death as an apologetic. What's the point? I'm supposed to give a reason for the hope that's in me. I just want to talk about the issue of death being itself, that passage out of this life being itself something that helps me show the truthfulness of scripture. And I want to talk about that in a, in a more uh, conversational way. Not, no, that's not the right word. I want, to, I want to talk about that in terms of how you're going to encounter these people as you share the gospel with them. How does this discussion and, and topic of death help you through affirming the truthfulness of Scripture? And I want to think about it this way. Most people want to go, I don't, most want to, they want to say, I don't need your gospel. I don't need your God. You're fine with that. It's good for you. It's, you know, whatever. Not good for me. I'm glad it's true for you. It's not true for me. Everything's fine. I'm fine. I don't need it. That's so much of what we encounter when we deal with evangelism. What I want to say is death is a concept. The profundity of death is a total disruption to everything is okay, right? Everything is not okay. When you die, at least in terms of what you know and experience and you have in terms of satisfaction and joy and pleasure, relationships, love, all of that stuff is gone for you as everyone can attest just by the fact that people that we know have died and all of that stuff that they used to enjoy doesn't seem they seem to be enjoying it anymore. So death is a disruption to everything being okay. And that is a super helpful thing. Ecclesiastes is a key book in this regard. The whole book is helping us see things. If this life is all there is, what a waste, right? In the end, what are we doing? Like a hamster in a wheel, it doesn't make sense. Ecclesiastes 5.15. Speaking of the person objectively as some guy, some nameless guy, he came from his mother's womb and he shall go again. He came on the scene. He's going to leave naked. He came, had nothing, right? And he's going to take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You want to talk about becoming a, an existential nihilist, that there's no purpose. What's the reason? What's the point? Death is a disruption to every point and reason you live for. What, what do you live for? All of those things you live for, think about that, are gone if you're not putting your trust ultimately where Ecclesiastes takes you in chapter 12 to God. If you don't have that, if you don't have a right relationship with a creator, then all of this is, it's just, it, it's, it's worthless. It's vain. It's chasing after the wind. Death is a concept I think needs to be utilized much more often in our evangelism as a talking point. We need to move people into that very uncomfortable place. And, and it's a very simple. And I mean, I hope I was sharing the gospel yesterday with a guy. I was in Chicago yesterday and, and I had a cab ride, which I like to share the gospel in the cab. And whenever we talk about the gospel, we eventually have to get to the fact that this life is not what it's about. And so you want an easy in, even if you have a short time with a person in a conversation. I mean, you can ask them a very simple question about death. And I mean, I've heard it used countlessly by others. I've used it myself many, many times. It's not my only approach to it. Hey, what do you think happens to you when you die? That's kind of a nice way 
to bring up a subject that's very disruptive because no one wants to think about that. And that's a good place for us to start because the gospel is addressing that very problem as we dealt with last week. The whole point of the resurrection cornerstone of that, fixing the problem of sin and its consequences. So death is a disruption, and that's a very helpful disruption for people that think, I'm fine, I don't need any of the stuff you have. Number two, obviously, death is an inevitability. It's the question, what happens to you when you die? When you die. Not if you die, no one says that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, from that old 60s or 70s song, whatever it was, you know these words, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. And the first one on the list is the temporal nature of mortality, a time to be born and a time to die. The reality of the span of your mortal life, that should be the bookends that makes you think beyond this life, which is the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes, to spend time under the sun trying to deal with life and to recognize there's got to be something beyond the sun. And so it is that the death being an inevitability for everyone should help us in our conversations to press into a arena of transcendent matters, of things that matter that really we go to church, I hope, every Sunday to deal with, which a lot of churches don't, sadly, these days. But that's a good place to start. The inevitability of death, as I quote often George Bernard Shaw, pithily said, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. That should help us in our evangelism, and it helps us in our apologetic by giving a reason for the hope that's in us because all of us need a hope. That's a good place to start. Do you see the sense in which I'm talking about death being an apologetic? It begins with the problem, but a problem that's universal and inevitable. Death is humbling. If you want to put it in those terms, I think it's good. You can talk to the most powerful person in the world. I was just talking before we got started about Richard Dawkins, right? The most militant atheist came out with a new book last week. He's going to die. He can beat his chest like William Hensley and say that he's the captain of his own fate and the master of his own soul. But in reality, you are powerless when it comes to death. To stay in Ecclesiastes here for just a minute, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit, right? What is death? As I defined it in the last book I wrote, it is simply the, here's a simple definition. It is a separation of your soul and your body, your spirit and your body, the separation of those two things. That's death. Stephen said, receive my spirit. When Christ said to the Lord, you know, into into your hands, Father, I, I commit my spirit. When your spirit leaves your body, you're dead. And the point is, you can't keep your spirit in your body. I've been there several times, as some of you in healthcare professions have, or paramedics, when people have died right in front of you. There's, there's n- nothing to stop that. I mean, you, the, no one has the power to retain their spirit, right? Or the power over the day of death. I mean, unless you accelerate that, I suppose, in a suicidal moment. If we all want to live with the natural assumption that we want to keep on living, you can't control that. You can't keep your spirit in your body, and you can't control when you're going to have to give up that spirit. And that is a humbling thing. And there's something that we need in the hubris of Psalm 2 in trying to say, why do I need God? Shaking my fist at God. I don't want his morality. I don't like his rules. I don't like there being a teacher or someone in charge of me. Something very humbling about, just just think about death. Death is an apologetic. It's apologetic in the fact that we are like the flower of the field. We're like the grass of the field. We wither. The flower falls off. The grass withers. We are not going to last. We're like a vapor. That is a helpful apologetic in why we're walking around saying there's more to this life and we need hope beyond this life. So death is an apologetic. Consider the humbling effect that death has and utilize that in your evangelism. And thankfully, to continue in Ecclesiastes, death should, if we can hold our nose there long enough, prompt spiritual contemplation that we're more than mortal, that we're more than this life. That there is something beyond the grave. And I've got to start dealing with preparation for that. 
I mean, that old line, prepare to meet your maker. You know, you picture someone on a sandwich board and a bell yelling, you know, to prepare to meet their maker. Well, that's what death does. It helps us think that through. Some are going to close their eyes and whistle in the graveyard and cross their arms or stick their finger in their ears and not want to think about it. But when we have to stop and think about it, when Dawkins, speaking of him or Sam Harris, whoever it might be, has to go to the funeral of his friends, you can roll your eyes at all the rigmarole going on with the pastor on the stage. But hopefully you're going to think about the day of your own death and the powerlessness and the humbling nature of death. Ecclesiastes 7.2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. At least that's the way it ought to be. And in most cases it is. Until, by the way, we turn every funeral into a celebration of life. Can I say that while we're not planning your husband's funeral? Can we say that right now? I know that we want to put a slideshow on the screen and all that. But we're there to grieve the mourning of the loss of someone we love. That's a death. That's a mourn. That's a time to grieve. Just like it says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to grieve. Guess what a funeral is? Time to grieve. And I would just encourage you, as you start to think about planning, not that you know when that's going to happen, but you think about the funeral planning, because eventually you're going to be in one of our pastor's offices if you stick around here, and you're going to be planning a funeral. Can we not try to turn it into a party? In part because part of what we're supposed to do as human beings is to stare death in the face and say, wow. That's a serious, inevitable, life-changing, humbling thing. And the whole point of church is to think about the reality of that. The whole point of the gospel is to prepare for that. In the olden days, they used to have the, the churchyards, the graveyards that would surround the churches. When I used to go back to visit my relatives in Alabama, we'd go to the old country church, and there would be all the headstones and grave markers for all the people that had died. You know, I know it becomes scenery after a while, but coming into church, walking past the, the grave markers of your loved ones that you might have buried there last year or two years ago or three months ago or 10 years ago with your surname on a, on a headstone. That's not a bad way to go into church. It's going to help you, isn't it, when they get up on the platform and try to shove down your throat, you know, 10 ways to improve your life or whatever. You're going to think, wait a minute, these should be about weightier matters than just kind of rearranging the chairs on the deck of a sinking ship. This is about preparing for the collapse of this world. And I think that's helpful. Death prompts spiritual contemplation. And if we had the real estate and I think I thought I could get the permits, I would put a, I'd put a cemetery around the Columbia Loop. I would, I would raise half of the buildings around and just put a graveyard there. I actually put, I'd put it around the immediate perimeter and then the parking lots beyond it and you'd have to walk through it to get to church. And then you, it would confirm that you think your, your thoughts that I'm crazy. But you know, our spiritual forefathers did that as a plan. You know that. They could have put the, the cemeteries at the edge of town just like we do now, and tuck it away in, in behind the gates and the trees, make it look like a park. Our spiritual forefathers weren't as dumb as we think. It's a great apologetic when you're bringing your non-Christian friend to church. I don't think I can get the permits, so, <laughs> so don't worry about that. Death engages the conscience. Death engages the conscience. As we'll see about the conscience in a little bit, let me tell you what Hebrews 9.27 says, a very oft-quoted verse. It's appointed on a man once to die. Now, the problem is no one puts a period after that. I guess 15% of Americans put a period after that. But most Americans still put a comma after that. And they start thinking about what comes next. Here's what their conscience tells them. Day of reckoning. Accountability. The Bible calls it judgment. Remember Hamlet, Shakespeare's soliloquy, the, the, you know, the to be or not to be? I mean, revisit that. It's, just, I mean, it, it's a good encapsulation of why Hamlet couldn't drive the, the dagger into his heart. Because of the fear of what lies beyond. I mean, what kind of horrors are beyond this life? What kind of judgment might I face? And that's what death can do. Death is an apologetic. 
is going to do something. It's going to help give us a reason for the hope that's in us as we get our evangelistic prospects to give that some consideration. Because their conscience is going to dictate that they better think about their sin and the accountability that comes beyond it. Considering death is helpful for our, in our evangelism. Which, by the way, how much evangelism takes place today where there's not even a mention of death? I mean, think about that. When we've packaged the, the gospel where you can pull a track, a little evangelistic pamphlet off of a, of a rack in the lobby of the church, and half of them don't even really talk about the afterlife. But God loves you and wants to make your life better. I and mean, we've lost what the gospel ultimately is about, as we'll see. Letter F. Death, in most people, still, prompts fear. Fear that Christ can eradicate. Death prompts fear Christ can eradicate. And that's very important, important for us to tap into, at least to know it, to know that that's the general reaction to death is fear. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think it was Spurgeon that made popular the phrase that death is the fear of kings and the king of fears. It's both. It's the king of fears. It's the top thing we could be afraid of, the ultimate scary thing. And it's also something that you can't avoid even if you're the king of the country. It's the fear of kings as well. And here, no matter who I'm sharing with, the topic of death can be a good apologetic in and of itself because it sets up for the gospel. Well, here's the problem in our day. Hell. How in the world can we preach the gospel today, which is the good news that you'll be delivered from what would otherwise be experienced if you don't respond rightly to the gospel? That's the stick, and that's the part people don't like. You're going to tell me that God is going to send people to hell. You're telling me that God has created all these people, and you've just said a wide road and a large gate is going to lead a ton of people, a majority of people, many people into a place of punishment. One of the first things to go as a church abandons biblical theology is its belief and affirmation of judgment. So we want to talk about that. But before I give you the point this time, let me give you the passage first. Because I want, want you to think this is one step removed from an immediate statement about hell. So I want you to jot this down and to think about the implications of this. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. But we, Paul said, preach Christ crucified. It's an interesting way to put it. Think about it now. That Christ was crucified that Christ got crucified, that Christ was executed. What's the point? We preach that. We proclaim it. It's the centerpiece of our theology, that Christ died on a cross. By the way, if you were to fill that in, he died on the cross for what purpose? He died, to use a biblical phrase, for our sins, right? The problem with that whole thing being the center of our theology is it is a stumbling block to the Jews, For many reasons. One of the reasons that Paul has constantly fought against in his ministry was the Jews thought they were better than the Greeks and the barbarians. They were better. They were favored. His illustrations time and time and time again were about people that thought, because I'm a Jew, I'm okay. Because I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm okay. I'm a part of the covenant community. I'm okay with God. And now you're saying, I'm not okay with God, that I'm a sinner and Christ had to die for my sin? That was the message of, 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 the, of the gospel of the first century. It's what Paul was preaching. And they stumbled over that. Not only could they not process that the king, the Messiah, would die. Why would the king die? Well, the answer to the question why the king would die was what they stumbled over as well. He died because you were sinners. He died for your transgressions. He was pierced for your transgressions. All of your iniquities had to be paid for. He had to be the suffering servant, the lamb. All of our sins were placed on him. That's, that's not what they needed. They didn't think they needed it. All we need is the king, the son of David, to ascend the throne, and yay, we win. Punish the Romans. That's what they needed, they thought. They stumbled over that. 
And it was foolishness to the Gentiles, ridiculous to them as well. Why would, why would I need that? What's the point of that? I want to put it this way. The apologetic for hell starts with this, the stumbling block of the cross. The whole point of our Christianity is the cross, and the cross is about a punishment, a punishment for what you've done, a punishment for the bad things you've thought, the punishment for the bad deeds and words of your life. That's what is being punished. First Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin, he was innocent, to be sin for us. So he gets crucified for our sins so that in him I might become the righteousness of God, which means I'm not righteous, I'm a sinner, and you're going to punish sin, punish my sin in him. So what should God do with me? should punish me. That's the cornerstone of the, of, the, of the theology of Christianity. God's judgment is central to the gospel. The gospel makes no sense without the cross, and the cross makes no sense without sin. And sin being punished on the cross is the problem that people face, is God's just response and punishment of sin. I heard a preacher... I think I referenced it viscerally last week, denying substitutionary atonement, which to put it simply that Christ suffered for my sin at the hand of God, punishing him instead of me. This is an epidemic among preachers today, denying what we would call penal, right? It was a legal substitutionary, should have been me, atonement. He covered my sin by suffering in my place. Penal substitutionary atonement. The denial of that is epidemic. And the point is, if we weren't being punished in Christ, and that wasn't the point, well, I got a lot of questions, what was it? And they come up with theories about that, none of them biblical or scriptural. But then I recognize the next shoe to fall in that argument is what? If he didn't die for my sin, and the answer was, as I heard very carefully in this sermon, as it's, I've heard it many times and read it in many books, it's about God's love. God is not angry at sinners. God is not going to punish sinners. He loves us. How does he forgive us? He just forgives us, just like you're supposed to forgive people. Just forgive them, let it go. That's what God did. If that's the case, you understand the next shoe to fall and what comes next. What about my neighbor who rejects Christ? Well, I didn't have to be punished. The whole point of John three sixteen, as this preacher said, was that he loves everybody. So, of course, what's, what's the problem with a non-Christian? Same problem I have. I know this, we're all sinners. There's no need for this thing called hell. We certainly don't want to be talking about that. We don't want to fear it, that's for sure. Again, you see, after you have to take your exacto knife and excise things out of the scripture then, right? Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. And after that, there's nothing he can do. I'll tell you the one to fear. Fear the one who, after he kills the body, right, can cast the soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, to quote Christ. But that doesn't preach well in a lot of churches. It doesn't preach well in our church. It doesn't preach well. Why? Because people don't want to hear that. And yet the whole point of singing about the cross and him dying for me is, that's what I deserve. But the only way I can avoid it is by him suffering for me in my place. When you tell your friends that they need to get ready before they die, get ready for that day and prepare to meet their maker by becoming a Christian. That's the whole point of this whole lecture series. You need to let them know what we exalt as the primary relief to my conscience that says I should suffer in a place of punishment for my sin is that Christ suffered for me. The whole point of the cross is that Christ died and suffered the penalty of my sin. Therefore, of course I believe in hell. Of course I do. I'd like you to avoid it. I get to avoid it. Why? Because Christ suffered for me. And then he calls me with two words in scripture, to put my trust in him, faith, and to repent. Those are the responses of the gospel. And God says he will then apply all the merits of Christ to me and all my sin to him. And you just need to stop stumbling over it. You need to stop thinking it's foolish and ridiculous. God's judgment is central to the gospel. Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law 
Weakened by the flesh, there was the rule, there was the standard, keep the law, you go to heaven, right? You get all the blessings of God. But weakened by the flesh, I can't do it. It couldn't do. Keep the law and you'll live. I can't. He solved the problem by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What is hell? It's the condemning of sin. Everyone's going to pay for sin and every sin will be paid for. You're either going to pay for it forensically in Christ and therefore not personally experience the punishment, or you're going to have to pay for it yourself and experience it yourself. God's judgment is central to the gospel. It is the whole point. That's a stumbling block, the stumbling block of the cross. And it's a stumbling block today as much, if not more, than it was in the first century. I know that your friends don't like to think about hell. As a matter of fact, watch the graphs, look up all the surveys, the Pew research polls, the Barna polls, whatever you want to look at. Hell continues to be increasingly unpopular while the afterlife in heaven continues to enjoy great popularity. What we don't want is anyone going to hell. I don't want any of my friends going there. I certainly don't think I'm going to go there. Well, we need to point out the whole point of hell is justice, God's justice. And what we're trying to affirm in our evangelism is the goodness of God's justice. First of all, in human terms, we should think of that. And I always illustrate it, and you've heard it. You're probably sick of me saying it, but it's like me trying to get the judgeship in Orange County by saying, vote for me and everyone goes free. That's a pithy little campaign slogan, but should not get me elected. That is, if you have any sense that there should be justice for wrongdoing in our society. Now, again, that could be that I could win on that campaign slogan because it seems like a lot of people don't want any of that until they're touched personally by the effects of sin in crime in this culture. And then they might say, well, yeah, I would like that person to suffer. I want them to have at least their freedom taken away, which is minimal suffering compared to what the Bible has to say in terms of active punishment. Nevertheless, we need to see that it's a good thing. You want a judge that is going to judge sin. Proverbs 18.5. It's not good to be partial to the wicked. You know what? You did wrong, but it's okay. I like you. Or to deprive the righteous of justice. So someone comes in, they were in the right, and here's someone that's done wrong, the wicked, and they come before you. You got the wicked, you got the righteous, but the wicked guy, I know him. Yeah, he might have stolen your stuff out of your house, but he's a friend of mine. I went to high school with him. It's fine. I'm going to deprive the righteous of justice, and I'm going to be partial to the wicked. God says that's bad. It is not good. And he's appealing to the fact that all of us should be able to intuitively recognize that. And if my little illustration helps, use it. Would you want all of the judges in Orange County to make a resolve that they love everyone and will never punish anyone? They'll bring no judgment anyway because they're not judgmental. That's what they want of God. They certainly want that of you. As a matter of fact, that's the ultimate unforgivable sin. You're a judgmental Christian. No, I'm really just, right, the, who, who was it in the court there? The court secretary. I'm just, I'm just reading the, the, the judgment. That's all I'm doing. Here's the verdict. I'm just reading it to you. I'm handing it to you. And of course, divine judgment is represented in scripture as good. If it's good on earth and you can see that by your human experiences, you ought to understand cosmically, it's a good thing with God. Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you to do such a thing as Abraham was talking about judgment, says if there's good people here, you shouldn't punish them. To put the righteous to death with the wicked. Would you punish them cosmically? Would you punish them in terms of God's judgment upon them? Would you treat the wicked and the righteous the same? No, far be it from you to do such a thing right? So that the righteous fare as the wicked, they have the same experience. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You're going to do the right thing. You're going to judge rightly, just like we want judgment to be done rightly and not impartially, or not partially rather, but impartially. We want it to be done right. We want it to be done fair. We should think of that in terms of the divine court as well as the human court, the goodness of justice, affirm the goodness of justice. Well, the problem with that, of course, is the problem of comparative righteousness. I'm all for that as long as the judgment doesn't fall on me. 
I'm, I'm fine if I own a shop and I've got all these people parking for two hours in the 20-minute curb. I want them to get a ticket. But if I have to do it at somebody else's shop, I don't want a ticket for me. And if I say, well, I only parked there for 30 minutes and he parked there in front of my shop for two hours, see, I'm going to say I shouldn't get the ticket and he should because I haven't done it as bad as he's done it. The point of the Bible is you've all gone over your allotted boundaries. You've all transgressed the law. Universal rebellion, the first verse I hope you learned as a kid in Sunday school, defining the problem, at least in the old days, we used to teach kids this, we do in our church. We need to remind them that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I'm trying to swim to Hawaii, we need to realize that all the losers don't make it. It doesn't matter if you made it 50 yards or 500 yards or five miles. You can go 500 miles and you still fall short of what is right. And that's the point and that's the start in trying to understand and explain hell to people is that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Smaller sins are still sins. California Penal Code section 451 says that starting a fire maliciously is arson. You shouldn't do it. It's against the law. If I go to court on an arson charge and say, well, my fire wasn't really all that big. It only burned five houses. It only burned down two city blocks. And that guy over there that I read about in in that other state, he burned down 15 city blocks. I can feel comparatively more righteous than the person that burned down 15 city blocks. And I only burned down five or five houses, but it doesn't make my sin not a sin. Jesus really tried to make that point with the people, a lot of people that were all into this comparative righteousness. They feel like I'm better than the next guy because I'm not as bad as that guy. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you've heard it said to those of old, your patriarchs, your old, the fathers back in the day, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he's looking at a spectrum here. You lit a fire with your words. You didn't light a fire with a match but you still did a destructive thing from a bad, malicious heart. Guess what? That's on the same spectrum. And he tries to say in that series of comparisons, this is all bad. You understand you're all guilty. You all fall short of the glory of God. It's worse for you to kill 50 people as a murderer, a serial murderer. It's still bad for you to kill five. It's bad for you to murder one. So all of it is bad. And that's the problem. Our neighbors want to say, I'm not that bad of a person. We talk about white lies. Why? Because they're not big lies. Well, even the big lies I've lied, they haven't been for, you know, really bad reasons. You know, I was an armed robber, but I only really ripped off people for smaller amounts of money. Like that, I give you the illustration, the guy that was caught ripping off a 7-Eleven and he pulled out his wallet and in it he had a list of rules to live by as a criminal, right? He was only going to rob on certain days and he was only going to do it certain ways and he would only do certain things. He had a set of rules for his robberies. He had limits to his sin. His crimes in that case. Smaller sins are still sins. We've got to get our friends to say that. And just because they might say to someone, well, you're only parked in that 20-minute space 30 minutes, we need to recognize, well, still we need to see that we still all need to see that there's all still a violation of the law. As unpleasant as that is. You want to be called judgmental? Just start using those kinds of illustrations. Comparisons are blinding. When you make comparisons, you miss the point. You miss the point that you deserve the ticket. You miss the point that you deserve the judgment. So you can't make these comparisons. You have to stop. I call them lateral comparisons. I use that all the time from the platform. We need to stop with lateral comparisons. Unless we're the judge adjudicating punishments, that's a different story. There should be greater judgment for people that do greater crimes. When it comes to sin, though, we need to stop comparing our sins and stop gradiating our sins so that we say, I'm okay because that person's far worse. 
Luke 18 is a classic example of this self-righteousness, all based on comparisons. Talks about the two men that went up to the temple to pray. This is Jesus telling a, a story. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This comparison sent him home thinking he's all right with God and he doesn't need to repent. That's the whole point. And at the end of the punchline of the story, as you know, Jesus says, this one who saw his sin, the tax collector, went home justified. He had his sins transferred off of his account and God assumed them to be punished by Christ on a cross, which was yet to happen. But that's the transaction that forgives anyone. As opposed to the other guy that just made lateral comparisons says, I guess I don't need repentance. Comparisons are blinding. Matter of fact, one of the problems in our contextual evangelism, in our culture in South Orange County, and this is our mission field, is a lot of people feel a lot better than the people that live in other places. Do they not? Certainly in Southern California. I think we're not like the bad people I know that live up there or down there or over there. I mean, we're respectable, upstanding citizens. Our morality is pretty good compared to other people. That's a blinding kind of thing. We need to stop people from thinking that way as much and as often as we can. The problem of comparative righteousness, it's blinding. Letter D, we're also deceived by societal norms. We're also deceived by societal norms. Because something is legal doesn't make it moral. You understand. There's relative morality always in a culture. We start to decide as a group, this is okay. It used to be considered bad, but that's the old fuddy-duddy way to think about it. Now this is okay, and we're going to say it's fine, and we'll all agree, and it's okay. So let us just, let's, let's do that without any kind of impugning of guilt, and let's not judge anyone for that. When that shifts the goalposts in a society, we start to affirm things that everyone can get away with and is okay, because it's legal. Legality, though, does not equal morality. And even things that are illegal, but people wink at them, we recognize that people still think, well, you know, it's not that big of a problem, not that big of a deal. Isaiah chapter 5 shows a snapshot in the picture of Israel's history where they were coming way down the road on this kind of thinking to where God looked at it from heaven and said, man, you guys, woe to you who call evil good. The things that are going on there, you saying is a good thing. And you're calling good things evil. You put darkness for light and light for darkness. You put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You've ended up calling the good thing bad and the bad thing good. And if you don't think that's going on in our generation, you don't read the news. This is where we are. And therefore, people can look at things that they do and think, well, you know what? It's okay. No one in our society thinks it's bad anymore. Matter of fact, they affirm me in this. Relative morality. One of the things that happens in relative morality is that we get egged on by our society to feel okay with our sin because everyone else does. They affirm us. Though people know God's righteous decree, we'll look at that in a second, those who practice such things deserve to die. They know that intuitively. They not only do them, but they, and here's what society does, they give approval to those who practice them. And that's where we're at, and that's where we've always been, and some segment of society has always been pushing in that direction, and the goalposts move, and the norms change, and the polls reflect it, and people say, well, this is okay, and therefore your neighbor thinks about his life and says, well, that's kind of where we all are at in our society, and it's okay. We're deceived by those societal norms. But we shouldn't be, and we should help our neighbors and friends and coworkers see an absolute standard. In chapter 5, God ends the chapter by saying, look at the relativity of your culture. You've defined things totally by the norms of society and no longer by my revealed word. Now he takes Isaiah and he puts him in a situation where he can get a refreshed vision of God's holiness. And you know the passage. They called one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And I said, immediately he now recognizes after that, you know, the smoke and the temple and everything shakes, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of, of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah can get in the presence and clarity of having God's standards 
on display in this vision, he recognizes that even he, who could stand back in chapter 5 and condemn society for the evil that they were doing, and immediately the first thing he's concerned about is the fact that he falls short of God's glory. I may have swam for 500 miles, but I still am not even halfway to Hawaii, even if I'm out there easily pointing out the people that collapsed in the first 50 yards. The absolute standard needs to be affirmed. Psalm 5, 4 and 6, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. What kind? Any kind. Evil may not dwell with you. What kind? The people that that kill people, the rapists, the extortioners? No, the boastful even shall not stand before your eyes. And who hasn't been boastful? You hate evildoers. That's your disposition as a natural holy being. That's who you are against unholy beings. That's your disposition. You destroy those who you couldn't pick an easier thing to condemn the entire universe than saying deception, lies. You destroy all who speak lies. The Lord abhors, of course, blood first thirsty and deceitful, a deceitful man the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We need to bring people back to an absolute standard, which is very uncomfortable, very difficult for them to see that. But by the way, I should say, even in that, there's lots of ways in which they want purity in their computers that they buy. You don't want the hard drive halfway filled with viruses. Well, I can give you one that's only a tenth filled with viruses. Don't want that. Go for surgery. I can get this cancer taken out, but I'm only going to take out 20% of it. No, I want more. How about 80? No, I'd like all of it taken out. God expects holiness. And one of the reasons... He gave us a conscience is to see that and to recognize that we're all guilty before him. A conscience is our guilt gauge. Your neighbor has a conscience. It's a good enough guilt gauge for them to be on judgment day without excuse. And I don't think anyone's going to be shaking their fist at God. I hear other preachers talk about them doing this. I don't think there will be that. There might be in the book of Revelation on their human turf being judged by God. But when they stand before God, I don't think anybody's going to go, this isn't fair. The rich man who had passed Lazarus at his gate every day was in hell in that picture of suffering and torment, as it says, and didn't once say, this isn't fair. I don't belong here. That's what humans say in our day, in our generation, about the prospect of hell. No one's going to be saying that. I don't believe that. I think the clarity on the other side will be that we deserve it. Our conscience right now is a little foretaste of that. Romans chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says that even people that out there that don't have exposure to God's word, they show by their own response to sin that the work of law is written on their hearts. While their conscience, it bears witness. It's like a a testifier, a witness. And it conflicts either between accusing or excusing them. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men's men's hearts by Christ Jesus. So we're presenting to them a gospel. What's the urgent need? Your death. What's going to happen to your death? The point of a man who wants to die and then the judgment. You better be ready for that. Here's the thing. You're going to have to give an account. That's what the gospel teaches. There's only one gospel. Paul says, if anybody preaches another gospel, even if it's Michael the archangel, you ought to say to hell with you. I'm not listening to you. I can't adopt it. You're wrong. You're anathema. So I know there's only one gospel, and the gospel that Paul preaches, he calls my gospel, and God is going to judge people's hearts all the way down to the motives of their hearts, and the conscience is giving a little preview to that. Conscience is the guilt gauge, and your neighbor has it. We need to help tap into that. There is an ability to suppress it, though, even to damage it, to sear it, to callous it. Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God, it is revealed from heaven. That means it's on its way against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's like the rain that's already started to fall from the sky. It hasn't hit the earth yet. That's the picture here. Just like he there parallels this with the salvation being revealed from heaven. The wrath is also being revealed from heaven. As it comes down, God reaches out and absorbs that penalty in Christ. But judgment is on the way. And those men that are going to be judged and women, they now, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Our conscience bears witness to the truth. In this context, creation bears witness to the truth. 
It's processed through your conscience. But we recognize those elements of creation and conscience speak to us things that everyone you share the gospel with is going to have some awareness of. Even though you can wear down the sharp, prickly corners of sensitivity to your conscience, we recognize that conscience is the gauge that should remind us that hell is an appropriate reality. Letter F. But it's excessive, isn't it? I mean, it's really excessive. Let's wrap it up. I'm going to have to pick this up next time, which I don't like to do, but we'll do that. Let's pray. I had such a positive ending prayer for you too. We were going to come out of this tough section on hell, man. We were going to get into such a good section, friends, but we'll have to wait. Let's, let's pray. God, I know our uh, schedule is not allowing us to move on, and maybe that's for the best. I trust that it is. I believe that you will work things together for good, and maybe even ending on this very sober note that wasn't my intention will be helpful for us to contemplate how we can share the gospel and even appeal to the goodness and rightness of judgment, the judgment that we're trying to just persuade people, to beg them to avoid by clinging to Christ in repentance and faith. So God, motivate us. Let us think even here, those that go to our church and are here on the weekends, maybe wrote down those four names from the first series in Acts 1, maybe even those names, thinking through those faces. God, help us to re-engage them with an appeal to get ready that death itself is a helpful apologetic that removes this charge on our back that we're crazy and that we're always thinking about things that are on another plane and another dimension and the pie in the sky, heaven and hell. God, let us recognize that everyone grapples with these issues. The imprint of immortality in our hearts, why people continue to even affirm that there's life after death. And most people that there's a place of, of blessings coming, even though God, you warn that people are filled with wishful expectations that's based on nothing. So help us to bring the truth of something, which is the foundation of all things, Christ himself. The good news of the gospel proclaims that we will, God, have that guilt forgiven, that judgment, that retribution, that payment of our sin taken out of the way. Oh God, please give us some success in the work of evangelism this week. Fields are white for harvest. We just need to open our mouths more often, God, and let us see some people one to Christ soon. So God, we commit this information that we've been talking about to our minds. We pray that you would help us to make it a part of the fabric of our character and it would come out very persuasively and helpfully in the uh, conversations we have this week and beyond. So God, thanks for the chance to chat with these good folks and talk through these things as we talk about the gospel and apologetics in Jesus' name. Amen.